We've been walking now for, this is the ninth week, through the little letter of James in the New Testament. Um, and, you know, verse by verse, just walking through, it's been a, it's been a bit quicker than we would normally do, uh, but sufficiency of scripture, verse by verse, we've been walking through James, uh, that's actually something I really appreciate about Michelle, is uh, she's passionate, she loves the Lord, but she keeps herself in check by what the Lord has said to her in the word, and I think that is so uh, important for us as believers that, that we always check our feelings, our heart, our minds, our thoughts with this infallible word of truth. And uh, that's why I'm very, very uh, comfortable knowing, Michelle, that when you head overseas, you've got the good book with you and you've learned how to read it and study it for yourself. And that is, that is uh, a good thing. The book of James, in many ways, as we've been chatting over these past uh, nine weeks, the book of James is, uh, could be thought of as an instruction manual for Christian living. It's written to Christians about how they are to live. Remember, we've talked about this a lot of times now, but let's just quickly state it again. You do not do what's in the book of James in order to become a Christian. It is by grace that we are saved through faith, but once you are a believer... There is work to do, okay? Uh, we don't obey this stuff to become Christians, but we become Christians to obey this stuff. So James is like a mirror, and you know, the more I chat with people, the more I think people are really starting to feel this. It is just a mirror that says, look at yourself. Look at yourself in this book. Um, James is a hard-hitting book, a very hard-hitting book, uh, and I wish I could say it's going to get easier today, but it's not. I think in many ways it's going to kick it up another notch. Um, this is probably one of the hardest messages I've ever had to prepare for and deliver, uh, but we'll see how we go. One more Sunday, and then we'll just go back to the the book of Nehemiah, which which is tough too. <laughs> so, uh, truth is hard. Uh, my assignment this morning is ambitious, very ambitious. Two weeks ago, we spent an hour on two verses, chapter 4, 11 and 12. Last week, we spent, I went well over time, and we spent... All of that time just on five verses. Well, today we have 12 verses. So there's literally, literally two sermons worth of material in here. So I'm going to preach two sermons to you this morning. And that's going to take at least two hours. <laughs> and uh, you're probably waiting for me to say I'm joking and smile, but I'm just going to get into it. The title of today's message is... Testing your faith by patience. And I'm going to use this opportunity. Yeah, somebody got there. I'm going to use this opportunity as well to, uh, to, uh, uh, to approach another subtopic that is very difficult, very complex, and I certainly cannot do justice to in the next 45, 50, an hour for you. And that is the very sensitive topic of evil. Uh, I'm going to use this text as an opportunity to dive into that perennial question regarding the problem of evil. We're looking at James chapter 5. We're going to be going from verses 1 through to 12. Uh, by way of outline, if you're taking notes, there's two main sections that we're going to address. Verses 1 to 6, I'm going to call it the persecution from the privileged. 1 to 6, persecution from the privileged. The second section is 7 to 12, and I'm calling that to keep the whole alliteration theme going pastors, whatever, preachers, patience that perseveres, 7 through 12. And there's going to be three subtopics in that, and I'll just read them out. Only God is revealed in the Bible can explain the reality of evil. Only God is revealed in the Bible can provide victory over evil. And only God is revealed in the Bible can offer comfort amongst the presence of evil. They are bold statements. Let's see from this text if a case can be made. And I don't expect it to be exhaustive. Maybe it just will open up more questions for you. That's a good thing. So without further ado, let's dive in, lest I have you here missing out on your soup. Uh, first of all, then, this morning, verses 1 through 6, persecution from the privileged. Please have your Bibles, if you have them there, open up, because I don't need to take my word for it either. Check me and what I'm saying against this text. Let me read these first six verses for you. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. 
Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. That is heavy. That is very heavy. Uh, I was chatting with Brad Hallett uh, earlier this week. Is Brad here? No. I was chatting with him earlier this week and... uh, and I told him the text I was reading, and he texted text me back and says, Ha, I'm looking forward to hearing how you make that family-friendly. Uh, last week, we studied the test of submitting to God's rule. Remember, James is a book of tests, Christian tests, to see how you're tracking, like that mirror, test to see how you're doing in the faith. And last week, we looked at the test in chapter 4, 13 through 17, uh, where we saw these Jewish Christian businessmen that were not conducting their business faithfully. That was the test of submitting to God's will in every area of life, particularly in in the book of James, it was with respect to business. So there was this presumption with these businessmen of self-sufficiency. That's what we looked at last week. And remember, we saw four reasons why presuming that you can make it on your own apart from God is foolish. Those four reasons were this, because of the uncertainty of life, you don't know. Because of the brevity of life, vapor because of the evil of arrogance that leads to destruction and because of the sin of willful disobedience four reasons why living outside of the will of God is foolish well here in our text this morning we begin with a similar rebuke if you look back there at chapter 4 verse 13 come now you who say now look back here chapter 5 verse 1 come now you rich starts the same way stern stern tone He's addressing two different people groups, though. He begins in the same way, again, not to Jewish businessmen. This time he turns his attention to the rich. Their position, their power, their prestige, and how they are persecuting these scattered Jewish Christians that James is writing to. Now, again, before we look to apply this to ourselves today, Let's dive in and understand this from its context. Let's do our historical homework. Recall that the book of James was written about 45 to 50 AD. So if we go back to the book of Acts in the New Testament, that's our history of the New Testament. Where does James fit in? Well, it fits in uh, just after Acts 12, if you want to draw out a timeline. Just after Acts chapter 12, which is after the first Christian martyr, that is Stephen who was stoned to death. You can read all about that in Acts chapter 7. When you flick over to Acts chapter 8, it begins like this. After the stoning of Stephen, at that time, great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except for the apostles. Who are they that are scattered? That is who James is writing to. James 1.1, to the scattered believers abroad. Okay? We also know uh, that not long after the stoning of Stephen and his martyrdom as the first Christian in the sense of what we know it today, church-going Christian, after uh, his persecution, after his death, uh, further persecution broke out uh, and James, the brother of John, had his head cut off by Herod. Uh, That is not James, the author here. It's a different James. So Stephen is martyred. James is martyred. Peter, in Acts chapter 12, you read about how he gets locked up. He was probably going to lose his head too. But remember, an angel came, loosed him. He literally just walked out, goes and knocks on the, his mate's house, the disciples, and they, they didn't believe it was him. They thought it was uh, a lie, and eventually they led, let him in. Um, go have a read of that, Acts chapter 12. God had different plans for Peter, so he was loosed. So that's the background here as to... who James is writing to, they're scattered abroad into the lands of Samaria and Judea because of the persecutions of the early church in Jerusalem by the Jewish leaders. So there are these Jewish Christians scattered abroad, and here is James, he's one of the apostles who is still there in Jerusalem, and he's writing to these scattered Jewish Christians, 
and he recognizes that even though they're now scattered abroad in various lands, uh, because of the original persecution back in Jerusalem, wherever they are now scattered, they're still putting up with persecution by who? By the rich. That's who he's addressing here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, by the prestige and power of the rich. So here in chapter 5, 1 through 6, James takes these non-believing rich persecutors head on and he condemns them for their actions. That's verses 1 through 6. And after that, he then turns his attention back to his primary audience, these scattered Jewish Christians that he's been writing to this whole time. In the words of John MacArthur, James goes from condemning the faithless rich to encouraging the faithful poor. He goes from condemning those who are the persecutors to comforting those who are the persecuted. Make sense? Good. So for the sake of time, I'm going to race through these first six verses, literally race through them. I hope you can keep up. If you can't, it'll be online. All right, let's go. Verse one, check this out. Come now, you rich, weep how for the miseries which are coming upon you. Again, like chapter 413, same admonishing, stern tone, different people. Come now, you rich, weep and howl. If that doesn't get your attention, I don't know what will. There is almost a violent intensity with the way James is addressing these people. It's aggressive. It's aggressive. Why, James? Why, oh why, are you talking about these rich people like this? What have they done? Is having money evil? Is having money bad? Is it their wealth, their riches? What is it about their garments, their gold, their silver? Why are they all rotting? Why are they all corroding? Are you saying, James, that all of these things are evil, that I can't have a BMW, that I can't have a thousand thread count sheet? I know what that is. That you can't have a 60-inch flat screen TV. What are you saying, James? What's going on here? Three things. First of all, follow along. The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud... Cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. Two, you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Three, you have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. What is going on here? What's the problem with these rich people? Three reasons. Fraud, fattened hearts, murder of the just. So let's be very clear what James is not saying. James is not saying anywhere in his epistle, nor I would argue anywhere in the New Testament does it ever say that having money or being rich is evil. Christianity doesn't teach that. Hear me on this, please. The Bible never says being rich is evil. The problem is not the money. The problem is the one managing the money. Okay? The problem is not your health. The problem is not your wealth. The problem is not your prosperity. It is what you do with your health, your wealth, and your prosperity. If you have all of those things, if God has blessed you, uh, given you a stewardship of health, wealth, and prosperity, and if you have that and you're still singing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, God bless you. Enjoy your stewardship. And coffee's around you. James is not talking about you. He's not. This is not you. He qualifies what he means by the rich in the following verses. James is not talking about richness per se. So who is James talking about? Chapter 5 verses 1 through 6 is talking about the person who sings this song. My hope is built on nothing less than physical health and wealthiness. I will always trust the sweetest frame and wholly lean on my own fame. And when darkness veils his lovely face, I must speak positive to gain more grace. My bank, my house, my health abounds. Oh, may I be in these things found. That's who James is talking to. That's who James is talking to. Now check yourself. Do you subconsciously sing that song? I do. I'll Definitely admit that, absolutely. I'm always leaning on myself more than I should, rather than giving it to the Lord. Just like last week, the underlying problem here is the same. Self, 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 self before God. That's what we're talking about here. God is not, I've said this before, I'm sorry, it's becoming a cliche. 
Uh, and I didn't even say it, I heard it from some other dude. God is not against you having things, he's against things having you. And there is a vast difference between the two. James is condemning the rich who find the, their wealth and their identity in their stuff. And consequently, because of that, they are abusing others because of it. Fraud, fattened hearts, murder of the just, they're all consequences of wealth abused. These rich Jews knew that fraud was wrong. They had no excuse. Leviticus 19.13, their Old Testament case law. You shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. Yet they were gluttons for money. They loved it. They committed fraud. They withheld wages from people, from their workers. And in doing so, they fattened their hearts like a fattened calf. And they, they did anything to get more money, even kill. Verse 6, you have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. That's not an exaggeration, by the way. James isn't just being sensational here. How many times do you hear on the news, in the newspaper, people killing other people for money? This is human nature. This is the consequences of making money the foundation of what you live for. People kill for money. But what happens to a fattened calf? Why does somebody fatten up a calf? Ribeye, fillet steak, flipped once, medium, cracked pepper, good night. That's why you fatten a cow. Slaughterhouse. Slaughter. We need to have steak month, you know, not soup month, steak month. In other words, all of your health, all of your wealth, your prosperity, as fat and as filling as that is, as good as you may look in the cattle yard of your local community, all that stuff is going to get you a ticket on a truck to Tom Piper's tinned beef factory. Slaughterhouse. Slaughterhouse. Because one day you're going to die, the world's going to keep on spinning, and someone's going to get all your stuff. Welcome to church. Be encouraged. This is what we do. We have reality checks. That is exactly what Jesus said, by the way. And James is really just repeating what Jesus argued in the Gospels. He said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Remember our rope from last week. A little rope analogy. That's what he's talking about here. These fattened, fraudulent, murderous, rich people, their health, their wealth, their prosperity, they were living for that little blue bit on the end of that rope. They did not have the rest of the rope, all of eternity in mind. All they're thinking about is that little tip of the rope called right now. And they lived for it. But there is this thing called death that is coming. Beyond that is this thing called eternity. And as Hebrews says, it is appointed for men to die once, but what comes next? But after that judgment, slaughterhouse, Uncle Tom's. Materialism gives you a carnal perspective that has no concept of eternity. Material says, look at the little blue tape at the end of that rope and that's it. By the way, yes, here it comes. That is why I will be on a crusade my entire life to crucify any so-called gospel that says your material status equates to your spiritual status. Your spiritual status does not determine your material status. But check yourself, my conservative evangelical friends, because we react to the perversion of the gospel, that health, wealth, prosperity thing that we heard taught at 6.30 on the TV in the morning, and we tend to go to the other extreme and find piety in our poverty. Don't do it. That is just as perverse. So firstly this morning, we have seen how wealth for wealth's sake is bankrupt. It is perverse. It, is, uh, it, it ultimately destroys you, but it also damages those around you as well. There's a lot more to say here. I could really go on for a long time. That's the first, quickest I've ever gone through, six verses. Um, and time is running away. So let's keep on moving. 
Second section, patience that perseveres, verses 7 through 12. And here, again, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to address the problem of evil. Let me read these out for you. Verses 7 through 12. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Now, verses 1 through 6 declare the persecution of the privileged. Sorry, the persecution from the privileged. If that's the evil, so to speak, then how is it that one who is being persecuted is supposed to live amidst the persecution? How is it that one who is living in an evil age is supposed to live within an evil age? That's the question I think James now turns to here. That's the direction. Verse 7. Therefore. Therefore what? Therefore, because of everything I've just mentioned in verses 1 through 6. Therefore, because of the, the persecution, in light of all of that that I've just said to you, be patient brethren until the coming of the lord Ugh. good on you james i'm suffering i'm going through persecution that is just what i want to hear thank you sir same old bowl of vegetables it's good but it just is boring it's hard work Hurts your jaw chewing that stuff. Be patient, says James. Man, I can't take no more broccoli. We've got one more week. You know the Greek word for patience here, it is just, it just sounds nasty. Macrothromeo. <laughs> it just sounds bad. It sounds like a big, stale, dry piece of cauliflower. It literally means to be of long spirit or to suffer long. It's closely related to this word endure that we have here down in verse 11. Indeed, count them blessed who endure. That word for endurance, by the way, literally means to live underneath and stay there. So four times he says here that despite the evil and persecution and the pain and the sufferings that you're going through at the hands of these rich people... Be patient. We are to suffer long. Stay there. Stay there. Stay there. Stay there. That's broccoli. That's tough. That is hard to swallow. And let's just acknowledge the elephant in the room, shall we? Until the coming of the Lord. That was written to persecuted Scottish Jewish Christians around AD 45 to 50 roughly 20 years after Jesus ascended there at the Mount of Olives. It's been 2,000 years and counting, and we're still staying there, waiting, being patient. Are we really meant to sit around and just stay there all this time? What is James talking about here? Here comes the question. Whenever you say that God is good, that God is all-knowing, God is all-powerful, but evil exists. Then you have what philosophers call a theodicy. Theos decay, God on trial. This is perhaps the greatest and most difficult challenge that has been levelled against Christianity for millennia now, and with good reason. It's a very, very hard issue to address. If an all-powerful, all-knowing God exists, why do bad things happen? It's a good question. But can I be bold and make this assertion and drag my fingernails across the board of 
your pluralistic sensibilities and suggest that only the God as revealed in the Bible can explain the reality of evil, provide the victory over evil, and offer comfort amongst the presence of evil. That's a bold statement. We're going to look and see how it comes out of this text. Uh, the first point there, explain the reality of evil, doesn't really come out of this text, so I'm going to move through it quickly. The second two just fall out. Please, uh, let's chat afterwards if you'd like to, to talk more about this. So firstly, and very quickly, let me just suggest that only God is revealed in the Bible can explain the reality of evil. C.S. Lewis wrote this when he uh, reflected on his former atheism. He wrote this. My argument was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. Of course, I could have given up on my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed as well. You see what he's saying? Evil is a lack of something. Evil is a lack. Crooked line, straight line. Evil is a lack of that straight line. Or as we looked at before, you can have something good and then evil is the lack of that good thing. A garment with moth holes in it is a bad thing. It is a lack of a good garment. You know, a fully moth-eaten garment is a coat hanger in your closet. Evil is a lack of something. That doesn't mean evil's not real. Blindness is a lack of sight and that's a very real thing. But blindness is still a lack of something, namely sight. That's what C.S. Lewis is saying. And he recognised that his atheism had no answer to the question of evil. In fact, it couldn't even justify the very asking of the question. It, it actually went against it because to declare that an action is unjust means that you must have some concept of what justice is. But if there is no, forgive me, if there is no transcendent moral law by which to judge what is good or bad, then there cannot be a transcendent law on which to make claims about things being good or bad. And a transcendent moral law requires a transcendent moral law giver. That's a big jump. Why? Because every single statement of morality is either raised by a person or about a person. Intrinsic to moral questions are personhood. And if we're going to talk about a transcendent moral law, we've got to start talking about a transcendent moral law giver who Christianity calls God. But if that's what you're trying to disprove and not prove, then there's no transcendent moral law giver, there's no transcendent moral law on which to differentiate between good or bad. Therefore, what becomes of the very question of evil itself? It literally self-destructs. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. The very raising of the question of the reality of evil presumes the existence of God. What God? Come back another week, we can talk about that. Secondly, this morning, that was a quick one. Secondly, this morning, only God is revealed in the Bible can provide victory over evil. Let's look here, verse 7, back into our text. How can James stand flat-footed back there in the first century, write to these scattered Jewish Christians from Jerusalem and say, in the face of their misery, be patient, brethren. What reason is there to be patient? What reason is there for you and I to be patient today? Well, that's only the first half of verse 7. Let's keep on looking at what he says next. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. That's why James tells us to be patient, because it's not an everlasting patience. There's an end. There's an end in sight. There is light at the end of the tunnel. There is a victory over evil. There is... You cannot understand this call to patience unless you understand it from an eternal perspective. In fact, it makes no sense to be patient unless we're talking about justice at the end of it all. What is the last book in our Bibles? Revelation. What is it a revelation of? 
the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servant things which must take place. When? Well, 2,000 years and counting. Sometime way in the distance from when John wrote that word at the close of the first century, sometime in the future from now. But David, that's then. That's the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. I'm in the tunnel. It's dark, it's miserable, it's cold, it's damp. What else have you got? Has James got anything else here? Why, I mean, why be patient? Well, first of all, this knowing the future gives purpose and meaning in the present because it sets an expectation of what is to come that can give you a hope right now. Read Revelation. I've read it a couple of times. It has a good ending. It's hard, but it's good. But didn't Jesus get the victory on the cross 2,000 years ago? Yes, he did officially at his first coming on the cross. Colossians 2, 14 to 15, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was written against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Officially got evil victory over evil on the cross but at his second coming jesus will actually consummate that victory in time and space here on earth how revelation eleven fifteen: the kingdom of this world will become the kingdoms of our lord and of his christ and he shall reign forever and ever revelation 21 3 to 4 and i heard a loud voice from heaven saying behold the tabernacle of god is written is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and he himself will be their god and god will wipe away every tear from their eyes and they sh- there shall be no more death nor sorrow nor crying there shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away that's at the end That's what we look forward to. That's our hope. That's where we place our stock. Listen to these profound words by Russian, the Russian novelist uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky. Just, just listen. I believe, like a child, that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating and absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small illudican mind of man, that in the world's finale, at that moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they have shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. That's good. And we can be sure of that only because of the God revealed in the Christian Bible. Friends, there are a lot of reasons why we can be assured of the second coming. Let me just give you one. Almost a thousand predictions in the Old Testament were literally fulfilled at the first coming of Jesus. We have what city he would be born in, how he would be born, what he would do, how he would suffer. The graphic details of his death were described in Psalm 22 a thousand years before the whole concept of crucifixion had even been invented. And look at the the studies of when we found this literature in history. It was well before Jesus. There is good evidence for the Christian Bible. So we can be assured that if Jesus came the first time and if we believe that, then we can be assured that he will come a second time. But that day is not today. We're not there. We're still in this tunnel, so to speak. Yes, already Jesus has come bringing the justification for sin, the just for the unjust. Yes, the Holy Spirit has come bringing sanctification, guiding us in all truth. But not yet is the restoration of all things. Not yet is the delivery of creation from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Not yet is the redemption of our body, for we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting that adoption. I know that one day I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, but yea, right now I walk through that valley of the shadow of death, and it's dark and it's dismal and it's dreary. It is, in the words of the Apostle Paul, a present evil age but jesus said the tares and wheat will grow up together james is there anything more for us yes there is and this is where we're going to slow down 
Thirdly, only God as revealed in the Bible can offer comfort amongst the presence of evil. Look at this illustration of the farmer. Verse 7b. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, waiting patiently for it until he receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James just described the second coming. In Israel, you had the spring rains around April or May, and then you worked, 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 worked in the fields, sowing, watering, plowing, planting, sweating, sore back, blistered hands. You worked, you worked, you worked between that rain there around April, May, all the way through to the latter rain in the autumn around October. Here is what James is saying. When Jesus Christ came that first Christmas, there was, that was the early rains. And he, we have been working, working, working now as his little farmers for 2,000 plus years, sweating, sowing, watering, plowing, patiently waiting, blistered hands, for, as the psalmist said, that day when truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Someday Jesus will come again. That is the second rain. Just as a footnote, there is a movement within some churches known as the latter rain movement. It teaches that according to Joel 2.23 that the first rain was at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and then the second or latter rain began about 70 years ago in the middle of the 20th century. So the latter rain, according to them, teaches that we are in this latter rain era now, that Pentecost is happening all over again, that God is working through his spirit in a mighty way to raise up certain people called overcomers to build the kingdom of God right here, right now, today. The latter rain movement is the wrong movement. It is the wrong movement. The, the second, the latter rain, the second is the second coming of Jesus. In Christ alone, our hope is found, or other ground is sinking sound, including the business projects of us. But do you see how this illustration of the farmer encourages you while you're in the middle of your toil, while you're in the middle of these two reigns? Because what is the farmer doing? Working. Yeah. He works. He doesn't just sit idly by, patiently waiting. And what enables the farmer to work harder and harder and harder? What, what helps him to blister, to ache, to groan, to bleed, to be patient, to suffer long and stay there, stay there, stay there? The farmer can do that because he understands and he sees. He is a witness to the radical change that is taking place before his very eyes. As he waters, as he sows, he keeps his hand on that plough, he keeps on a-pushing, he sees the soil turn, he sees the roots take hold, he sees the seeds start to sprout, the greens start to blossom, and he sees fruit start to form. That is why Paul wrote, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You see what James is saying here? Listen, listen carefully to this, please. We have reason to persevere through even our greatest grievances, even our greatest trials, even the most heinous of evils because of the hope of eternity at the return of our Lord Jesus, but also because, and more profoundly perhaps, right now, right here today in this very room, there is radical transformation taking place. In the hearts of people. Theologians call it sanctification. More like Jesus today than yesterday. More like tomorrow than today. There is change taking place. There is fruit that is evidence of that change taking place. Do you understand that really? Because I don't know if I do. 
said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. To my shame, that little sparrow speaks a lot about my life. More than I care to admit. But it's precisely because I have hope in the second coming and because I have hope in the transformation that I can testify to in my own life and see that I can obey Jesus when he says, if somebody tells you to go a mile, go with them too. When he says, if somebody strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. That's why we can obey Peter when he says, be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. That's why we can obey James and he says, be patient, brethren. This, isn't, this is the Jamesian test for you today. Testing your faith by patience. How do you wait on the Lord exposes the strength or the weakness of your faith. Faith is what? Remember from last week, Hebrews 11.1. Faith is, first of all, the assurance of things hoped for. Second of all, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is a virtuous covenant response that we have to something that we already know and believe to be true. Faith has its reasons. If you know and believe that amidst your pain, God is doing a sanctifying work. If you know and believe that amidst your pain, because of virtue, by virtue of his first coming, Jesus will come a second time, then you can, as Paul wrote in chains, say this along with him. I know how it is to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This changes how you and I read these hard passages in the Bible. Like back in James chapter 1. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This isn't some weird self-flatulation, whip-yourself-over-the-shoulder stuff that we're talking about here. You know, Da Vinci Code got that and everything else wrong, okay? Now do you understand what Paul is talking about here when he says... But we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. There's the patience. And perseverance produces character. There's the fruit. And character, hope, there's the second coming. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us, which he has given to us. There's the assurance. Patient waiting for the latter rain is not meaningless. You are not sitting on your hands waiting for Jesus to come back. Being patient is not just about what you will get at the end of it all. It is not just about that light at the end of the tunnel. As one pastor said, waiting is about what you will become as you wait. And delayed justice, delayed gratification, delayed peace of heart only makes sense when you understand that everything you have been through, everything that you are going through perhaps now, everything that you will go through, and believe me, you will if you live long enough, everything that is happening, as grievous as it is, as despairing, senseless and unjust as it is, as heart-wrenching, as hopeless as it is, the sanctifying work of God in your life through that trial infuses it with meaning in your march towards that ancient of days. Waiting has purpose. 2 Corinthians 4.17 For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That reminds me of the farmer. So, friends, brothers, sisters, verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Notice how and what your heart is established in. God's work. Contrast that with the fattened calves of the first six verses that we looked at before. Continue to water. Continue to sow. 
You keep your bloodied, blistered hand on that plough and you keep pushing. Because now is the growth ready for the harvest. Your day will come and when it does, upon reflection of your toil, these words will sound all the more sweet. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your reward. You have been faithful in the little and now I'll make you faithful with many things. Now I'll make you ruler over many things. Now what does all of this look like? How can we take all of these heavy, heavy, heavy truths about the reality of evil, the victory over evil, and the comfort amongst the presence of evil? How can we take all of this, walk out those doors today, and put it into action? How can we, in the words of James, establish our hearts with these truths? Verses 9 through 12, James gives us four things. Two instructions, two examples. This is not exhaustive by any means, but it's a start. And we'll be quick with these. Let's look at the instructions first. Instruction number one, verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Do not grumble. That's instruction number one. Why? Well, grumbling is, in a sense, a sign of impatience. It's easy to look at others and say, Lord, come quickly, judge them. I'm going through a hard time. My persecutors, come now. Let justice have the day. But be careful if we start thinking like that. And it's easy to do. Because what have we seen so many times already throughout James? Consider the log in your own eye before you start looking at the speck in others. Turn the other cheek instead of grumbling. Suffering builds character. Character produces Christian fruit. And not grumbling, not speaking evil of one another, James 4, 11 and 12, that is fruit. So there's one example. Oh, sorry, one instruction. Instruction number two. Let your yes be yes, verse 12. Above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Warren Wearsby writes a really good point on this verse, so I'm just going to read out what he says. He says, Surely James was reminding us of our Lord's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. The Jews were great ones for using various oaths to back up their statements. They were very careful, however, not to use the name of God in their oaths, lest they blaspheme God. So they would swear by heaven or earth or Jerusalem or even by their own heads. But Jesus taught that it is impossible to avoid God in such oaths. Heaven is his throne, earth is his footstool, and Jerusalem is the city of the great king. So do you see, like not grumbling, this is another example of Christian fruit. And if, the words, if words are a test of character, then O's would indicate that there is yet already work to be done. If you have to promise to do something, then you're in, there's, an, there's an indication that it has not yet or that you're not yet working on it. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Two more examples that we have here. First of all is a prophet. Secondly is Job. So first of all, the prophets. Verse 10. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. In the Old Testament, what was the function of a prophet? They revealed God's truth to God's people. And usually they did that amongst trials, suffering, pain, Elijah told the wicked Ahab that there would be a three and a half year drought and he, Elijah himself, had to endure that drought with patience. And yet God cared for him. Isaiah endured within the walls of Jerusalem against the Assyrians, the lords of death. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet who suffered and persevered through the horrendous siege of Jerusalem. Ezekiel and Daniel spent just about their entire lives in Babylonian captivity. If you read that book, you cannot escape the idea of patience, the book of Daniel. Spent five months there. Good book. Learn from the prophets. Learn from the prophets. Read your Old Testaments. 
They are there to guide, instruct, reveal the character of God through them. Example number two here, finally this morning. Job, verse 11. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. If you've read Job, you know that that man suffered. He suffered materially, emotionally, physically, spiritually. Every facet of his life was touched with suffering. And yet, though he questioned, though he asked, Job 2.10, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. And who gets the biggest hearing in the book of Job? Who gets the most real estate by chapter? In terms of unbroken speech, chapters 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, one person speaks God. God gets the final say in what's going on with suffering. And at the end of it all, he restored to Job doublefold. When it was all said and done, Job came out the better amongst his suffering, amongst his faithful patience. Why? Because God is not dispassionate for those who suffer. He's with you. When you are in suffering, the Lord is not just sympathetic, he's empathetic. This is a uniquely Christian thing. We have a saviour who condescended, suffered, validated human suffering in his suffering, died and rose again. Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That is the attitude of one who submits to the will of God amongst suffering. And I, I really mean... I do not mean to belittle any pain that you're, I have no idea what some of you have been through here. But I just want to say that he knows. He knows. Christian cliche, whatever. This is the heart of the Christian message is that we have a God who became flesh, dwelt among us, knows what it is to suffer. And I say this with caution because I've been th I thought long and hard about whether or not I should say this, but I will. I cannot think of any more, any greater evil that somebody can go through than rape. I think of all of the evils that somebody can experience, that act of rape is one of the most tragic because it is the ultimate desecration and plunder of that individual because there is this invasion of what is private and what is sacred words cannot even begin to describe the physical the emotional and the spiritual trauma that somebody goes through with that I, I know a number of people who have gone through this, who have been violated in this way. Uh, and I have a note here from somebody that, uh, that went through this. I did not expect to receive this from them, but um, with their permission, I, would want to, I want to read it out to you now because I don't want you to just hear it from me. I want you to hear it from somebody who's been through this. This lady writes... She's a, she's a believer. When you lay at Jesus' feet, even the worst pains we humans can suffer, in some way I feel that we need to have revelation that it is not about us. It is always about him. We have an intimate relationship with the Most High. We don't live in this world to focus on the suffering we have in the flesh but in the victory that Jesus gave us on the cross. No abuse can compare to the love that was displayed at Calvary. He was a spotless lamb. 
He is the only one that knows the darkness of our hearts. He's the one that knows the pain and suffering we internally have without the mask so many put on. He took that cup so that we could live, even for the abuser. The one that inflicts the pain on innocent victims is just as much God's creation. We need to pray for them and open our hearts in appreciation that God's grace is upon us and we know him and have intimacy with him and his truth sets us free. All the pain and suffering of this world that goes on, as his children, we don't have to face it in darkness, but can walk in his light and love and no abuse or neglect will ever overcome the knowledge that Jesus died for us and that he loves us more than we can even fathom. Brokenness is a reality when you're not saved. I think because once your eyes are open to the truth, then and only then are we made whole in him. We don't have to rest on feelings or circumstance, but on all of God's promises. That's incredible. How can you explain a response like that apart from the supernatural work of God in somebody's life? How can you, in the very least, you could excuse this person for speaking evil against or grumbling against that individual, their abuser? The very least, they'll get a pass on that. But there's none of that here. What is it about this person that they can look at that abuser and write this letter to me that says, we need to pray for them? I'll tell you what it is. It's a faithful commitment that says, I love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind. And because of that prior commitment, I can therefore love my neighbour as myself. It's a heart of flesh in the place of a heart of stone. It's a soul that recognises its own need of salvation and therefore the need of salvation in others. It's a mind that is disciplined and determined not to speak evil, but speak of justice, love, mercy and forgiveness. The four elements which converged only on the cross of Jesus Christ. Even though the womb still bleeds, only through the scars of that trauma, through that experience, even the heart, the soul and the mind, yes, from time to time it's going to lapse, it's going to get angry, it's going to grumble, it's going to complain. But only because of that experience can she then look at one place, the cross of Jesus Christ, the very word crucifixion comes from the Latin excrucio, excruciating only because of her faith in jesus can she look there at the lord of glory naked before his own creation nailed to a cross and know that through that act of death and resurrection christ now lives in her by his spirit friends that reality emmanuel god with us even that can take a broken body that has been desacralized and devastated and lifted to the sanctity of being the very temple of the living God. Only God as revealed in the Bible can offer that truth amongst evil. No other worldview or religion I submit to you this morning can do that for a person. None. None. Jesus did not come into this world 2,000 years ago to wipe away every tear from the eye. That's why he's coming again. Jesus came into the world 2,000 years ago to make dead people live only that truth can bind up the brokenhearted only that can proclaim freedom and set captives free i challenge anyone in this room today to tell me of a worldview or a school of thought apart from biblical christianity that can explain the reality of evil systematically and systemically that can provide victory over evil and thirdly can offer comfort amongst the presence of evil only in the judeo-christian worldview can these issues be addressed because only in the Judeo-Christian worldview do these four elements converge in one place, justice, mercy, love, forgiveness, cross of Jesus Christ. You have no other Jesus or a saviour like that 
apart from Christianity. And you need to know this today for your own sake, for your own salvation's sake. And if you're a believer, you need to know this for yourself, for your own sanctification's sake. The problem of evil ought to make us cry out to God, not run away from him. It's in the valley, the shadow of death, that we huddle into our shepherd. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. Running away in that dark valley, suicide. These scattered Jewish Christians, they were being persecuted by the privileged of their society. So James calls them amongst their persecution to be patient. The imperative is the same for you and I today. Be patient, brethren. Only in light of the cross of Jesus Christ can this call to patience make any sense. It's broccoli. It's hard to digest. But there is patience in the patience Suffer long. Stay there, stay there, stay there. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I don't believe that you're a kind of divine architect that builds a staircase that leads to nowhere. There are reasons for our pains. There are reasons for our persecutions. There are reasons for our evils and the sufferings that we experience and that we witness around the world. Most of the time I don't get it. I don't understand what I read and why things happen, what happens to me, why that person goes through that, why I didn't, and why I go through what I go through and they didn't. I don't know. Sometimes it's kind of obvious, you know, like when you have chastened me, I can see that, kind of like a trip to the dentist, it hurts, but I look back and I see the value. (laughs) But a lot of the time I just don't know. I just don't know. I can't see sense or meaning. But Lord, I know why I know that I don't know. It's because I'm just a person. I'm a finite human being. My vision can't see to the top of those stairs. But you, Lord, you can see the top of those stairs. Just because I can't doesn't mean that there isn't a top. You know the end from the beginning. In your infinite wisdom, you know where that staircase of suffering is going. Isaiah said, the secret things belong to you. Father, I don't, I don't know the spiritual condition of everyone here. I don't know what pain for some people has risen to the surface, what emptiness some people are feeling right now. I don't know how backslidden some people are. I don't know. But I know that they're here. I just pray for them that their hearts would be melted like butter, that you would crack any apathetic mask that they've put on and that you would show them now how only a personal relationship with your son Jesus can make sense of the great existential cries of our hearts. And Lord, for those of us here who, who do know you personally and well and have walked with you for a while, Father, we just recognise, or at least I, I recognise that I've never grown in my relationship more through pleasure as much as I have through pain. As my good friend C.S. Lewis said, <laughs> you whisper in our pleasures but you shout in our pains. It's your megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Our disappointments are your appointments. We know from your word why the long wait, why the two reigns, because you are using this time to call out a people of your own. You're using this time to grow the crop. 
The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. May our present pains, Father, our blistered hands, our bloody brows be viewed within this context with eternity because only with that context and that perspective can we make sense of everything that we're going through. So, Father, with a certain sense of fear, I just want to close now and, and ask that you would strengthen us, your farmers, to work your fields. And yet without fear, I recognise that come what may, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right. To this end, Father, we are thankful, thankful for your word, thankful for this truth, for the encouragement that it brings, the uncomfortable reality checks that it brings. And yet, Lord, it is no mistake that you have awakened this to us today who are here. May we hear it, may we heed it, may it change us. Amen.